0: This is the Collection Public Art Podcast. I'm Roxandra Bajer. When you walk into the University of Edinburgh Main Library and look to your left, you'll notice a scaffolding holding the phrase, the basic material is not the word, but the letter. It's big, written in bright lights like a marquee sign, so it's pretty hard to miss. This is a sculpture by artist Nathan Coley, and it was just installed December of 2017. It's part of the University's Public Art Collection, so you might now be wondering, Why? How? Why is a work of art inside a library that has literal barriers to entry, barriers that typically require a student card to get through, how's this in a public art collection? How did we get here to work like Coley's? And generally, what even is public art? Well, that's what we're talking about today. Public art. What is it? Spoiler alert, it's not quite that easy. This podcast is supported by the University of Edinburgh's main library, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary where connections come alive. Share your favorite memories through text, photos, and or video of your time at the library by tagging at eduni using the hashtag uoelib50 on Facebook and Instagram. I suppose this question of how did we get here, I should start with how did you get here listening to me go on about art? Well, The Collection Public Art Podcast, What You're Listening To, is part of the University of Edinburgh Art Collection's new push to develop its public art collection and help people engage with art around campus. There are over 20 works either commissioned by or donated to the university out and about. If you're at all involved with the university, you've probably passed by at least one on your daily walk, maybe without even noticing. The total art collection is actually comprised of over 10,000 different objects. And if you're curious about what some of those objects may be, you can check out Chloe Magalchi's series, The Collection Podcast. Luckily, my pool is much, much smaller. This episode and the next four will cover a range of topics using different works from the collection. So if you get to the end and wonder about, you know, what about costs, what about commissioning and decommissioning, hang tight. We'll get to those. But we're starting broad, warming up, doing a little introduction first, setting the scene. The Tate Modern defines public art as art that is in the public realm regardless of whether it is situated on public or private property or whether it has been purchased with public or private money. So as every humanities instructor hosting a discussion has said, let's unpack that statement. First, I'm not going to try and define art, but I will say public art is not limited by any medium. It can be sculpture, it can be performance, it can be mural, it can be permanent or just temporary. It really doesn't matter. We just tend to think of sculptural things more often because they do tend to be the permanent sticking around ones. Okay, now, with that out of the way, public realm. This is a really important distinction, that it's not necessarily public domain. Honestly, before this project, I thought some public body, some government, was necessary to put the public in public art, but it's not. You can be on private land, funded with private money, and still be public art. So, public realm is, according to the Edinburgh Public Realm Strategy of 2009 by the City of Edinburgh Council, those parts of the city where people can gain unrestricted access at least during daylight hours for the purpose of passing through, meeting, visiting, and enjoying. It is where we come together as a community, not merely a place for functional movement. And it just so happens that these publicly accessible spaces are often part of the public domain, the government-owned category. We're working in that public domain space, being a public university and all, making this only a little bit easier. So is access enough? Is being a domain enough? And how much access are we even talking? I spoke with my lovely boss to get another definition perspective and find out more about the university context.
1: Hi, my name is Liv Lomanek. I'm the university's public art officer. So I work with the art collection um, and look after art on campus. Uh, and putting the art collection out on campus. Um, to give a bit of context, because I think it's important to say that the role of public art officer is a new one, a new position, shall we say, at the, at the university. It was created in 2016 for two reasons, one being that the university at that time had just acquired, or excuse me, had were gifted um, the Palazzi mosaics from Tottenham Court Road tube station. And that brought with it, you know, a whole heap of challenges that meant that having a dedicated person working on that was was required. The second, though, was um, the fact that art on campus had become kind of a strategic focus for the art collection and the university collections more generally. So as well as taking care of and maintaining what we have on campus in more... With more focus and, and detail than before there was also this motivation to develop opportunities for art on campus and engagement of art on campus um, so that's very much what i do in terms of the day-to-day i'm trying to develop all these things um, so things like the palazzi mosaic project bringing that forward um, looking after particularly as well sculpture works on campus that hadn't been looked after before increasing their visibility uh, research around them and ways of engaging with them and that includes things like developing a kind of dedicated website for that for those works uh, creating trails around sculptures on campus trying to think about creating a podcast series um, with our Fantastic students, um, and basically just generally advocating for the works that we have. Two of the very important things that happened, um, or I suppose that mark this kind of shift in focus for the art collection, is of course the two permanent art commissions at the university recently. The first being the Susan Collis in Bristow Square, the next big thing is a series of little things, and the Nathan Coley work basic material is not the word, but the letter. So I was involved in the installation of those, but looking forward, I'll be searching and keeping an eye out for opportunities for for those, for those similar types of projects around campus. Yeah, the definition of public art is a really difficult one and has been historically. And also, I think there's been a shift very recently in how we think about it. So I think part of what the university needs to do and... I suppose what what I need to start doing is looking at what we define or how we look at art on campus um, within those different definitions. I would define public art, though, um, as something that's visibly accessible and in the public realm. And by that, I mean that it's an art form that is... um, Contributing in some way to place or to the public realm, whether it's actually creating it in some sense or kind of forming it um, or interrupting it. From a kind of a more art historical perspective, there was this shift in the 1960s with the development of things like the land art movement and this kind of movement away from the gallery context. And I think that that's what that's allowed to happen in, in considerations of definitions is this idea somehow, more generally speaking, how public art may be something that is outside of your traditional spaces or not where you expect it to be. Um, yeah, and so I think... And, and then on a more general and even maybe more vaguer level... I think what we've gained from what's ha- what's happened in the sixties and those kind of contexts is this idea of an art form that where context is important. So that idea of kind of site specificity. This the, the shift that I was talking about that happened that has happened more recently in this kind of growing discourse around critical discourse around public art. Has t- has come, or has largely revolved around this idea of permanence and how well public art traditionally is your sculptures and your statues of of people who've done great and amazing things. But more recently, it's something that maybe doesn't have to be a permanent feature fixed in an urban context. So, yeah.
0: So, we still don't completely have a set and solid definition, do we? In the public realm, visibly accessible, in unexpected, non-traditional places, but some definitions you find will still include public museums, and others will say, no, no, absolutely, outside of the conventions and spaces of museums and galleries, even if they're public. So where does this put the library, though? Where does this put Coley? Uh, so I wanted to ask you on your thoughts about the Nathan Coley piece in the library, because I know it's kind of a strange... It's in the middle of what is a little bit restricted, but also public. So what is mm. what is your idea on it?
1: Um, well, the library is a really interesting building, and it's a really... Um, and the Nathan Coley work in the context of that is an interesting way of thinking about these things because libraries are, you know, historically these kind of um, iconic public building, the iconic public space in that they are open to everybody, anybody can use them, and that is certainly the case with the University of Edinburgh's library. Um, Anybody, whether it's staff, student or a member of the public, can come in and consult material, um you just use the facilities of of the library space visit the crc go to the gallery in the main foyer um and also come and see the nathan coley work um but as with all public spaces that there are some kind of rules and regulations in some senses in that with the library to come into the university library and to come into most libraries in to a greater or lesser extent you do have to kind of become a member or get a card and that is more visible here than in other libraries in that there's your barriers um, that you have to swipe in and out of or you have to go to the reception and, and come through for the work and for us advertising the Nathan Coley work is something to come and see That does those barriers do obviously pose us with a little bit of a problem um, but it's interesting to start to think about how whether those barriers and those rules and regulations actually affect a definition of an artwork. Um, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting question, or it's a really interesting um, problem, shall we say. Um, yeah, I guess the idea of not considering the work as public art is, is, doesn't really sit well in my head because it's, it was commissioned with all intentions of, of being an open work and something for everybody in the way that all of the art collection is. Um, but equally, I'm, I can see the issues of, of that kind of that, uh, crossing that threshold.
0: As difficult as it is to imagine Coley as not being public art, it's still tough to have it perfectly fit in with public art. We're left still wondering how we got here to being so unsure about public art and how we got to that shift in the 1960s. Well, if public art is historically hard to define, why not look a bit at the history of it? Of course, this is only a quick crash course in Western public art. I could easily start with cave paintings. I could go way, way back. I could go all across the globe. But instead, I'm going to stick to Europe and I'm going to jump ahead to the Greeks. 447 BCE. The Parthenon begins construction. Yes, public art can include pieces of architecture. A building to provide all people with something beautiful. The Greeks, and later the Romans, had, of course, many more forms of public art. Ancient civilizations like these had sculpture, monuments, victory columns, arches, Uh, even circulating coins could be public art. And this is an important note for the whole of this little timeline, that although I'm pointing out specific trends that are very often propaganda campaigns from really higher up authorities, they don't at all encompass all of the forms going on at one time. Art is always more complicated than that. But back to your crash course. The Romans had mass-produced images of emperors spread across the empire, and this really helped to assert authority and power. Then, as we move on from that empire to the Roman and Eastern churches, that strategy of asserting authority through images kind of continues, and these are the new big patrons of art, they really let art flourish, and they maintain and demonstrate power and wealth and religious values through more images, they inspire the community with great medieval and gothic cathedrals, kind of like, think Notre Dame. Next up, everyone's favorite, the Renaissance. 1400 to 1600 AD. The church gets really into it now, producing some of their best stuff yet. But in this period, we also get the start of the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther posts his 95 theses in 1517. And, well, you know what they say, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. And now, with the Protestant Reformation threatening its status, the Catholic Church is really feeling Baroque, 16 to 1700, we get dynamic, confident, realistic, intense public art in an attempt to reaffirm that status. But this was the last great propaganda campaign out of the church. 1700 to 1900. Moving from the church to more civic authority, public art gets more secular, celebrating war heroes, victories, and historic figures. The Enlightenment hits us in 18th century, carrying us quickly into modernity into the 19th century. Now we're all about science and progress and liberty... Urbanization, public education, individualism, cities like Paris get public parks and squares, and the middle class discovering leisure starts to enjoy these public spaces more and more. This is also when the university's public art collection begins. We have the statue of David Brewster from 1877 standing at King's Buildings Campus. He was a scientist, inventor, author, academic administrator, and he went to the University of Edinburgh when he was just 12 years old. Uh, Another one, if you look at Old College, you'll notice it has a pretty nice dome on top, and on that dome is one shiny, shiny boy named Golden Boy. He was sculpted by John Hutchinson in 1888 and modeled after Edinburgh boxer Anthony Hall. This is all statue mania as we move into the 20th century, leading to finally in 1910, perhaps the first recorded use of the term public art in reference to this type of artwork. As you may imagine, with all this wild social and economic and cultural change, public art begins to change radically as well. People aren't content having art just thrown on them. They want to take part in it. Part of this change occurs because we realize that whatever the public is, it's complicated. Another thing that changes public art a lot, and you may have guessed it, the First and Second World Wars. A lot of art pops up after the Second World War, and this isn't just memorials like the one we have in old college which actually that was first unveiled in 1923 as a memorial to the first war and then had to have an extension added to include the names of soldiers from World War II. So it's much more than just memorials. And there's thousands popping up all around the UK. We actually don't have a definitive count of what was going on here. All of them, the promotion of them as well, all of this was a really intrinsic part of a post-war reconstruction and regeneration program. Some of the biggest commissioning bodies, the biggest regular promoters of public art, were, naturally, educational authorities trying to improve the school environment and encourage creativity. See, this movement was no longer purely about asserting an authority and power, but it did begin to really think about the audience that it was creating this art for. And now, if you're still here, congrats, we did it. We reached the 1960s and that important critical shift Liv mentioned so long ago. I mean... Everything is building up right leading up to this, when we really get into social engagement and participation in public art. It's also really, really critical to tell you it wasn't until this decade that the term public art was even used regularly. One of the first books on public art was a 1967 publication titled Art in a City by John Willett. One copy is available from the Edinburgh College of Art Library. Even now, literature is still pretty sparse, so you're welcome, academic community. This all contributes to why we're confused now and why Coley can be a bit baffling. We got more into public art, studying it and expecting more from it, that now we recognize a split and we think, can really all of the stuff people have access to be under the same name? You know, because some people will argue all art is public by being published, and some people will say even if something is art and it's outside, it's not public art. It's simply art in a public space. So what do we expect now from public art after all this change in fluctuation and interest? Site specificity, as Liv mentioned, rather than things being site general. Art made for the space it is in, specific to the community, responsive to the environment. Not art that can just be put up anywhere, not the plop art type of public art. The styles we come to in this push for specificity can be environmental art, installation, land art, those really big types where islands get wrapped in pink fabric. We develop new genre public art and community arts. These are arts meant to be a catalyst for creativity and political imagination. They're socially engaging. Of course, when things get contemporary, abstract, challenging, sometimes they aren't very well received, which is what happened a ton in the 1970s. So we still get conventional and traditional public art. We still get realistic monuments to historic figures that look straight out of the 19th century in this attempt to at least give people something kind of pretty.
2: That's going to get me off on a big rant now because I have a really severe problem with that.
0: That was Kenny Hunter.
2: My name is Kenny Hunter. I am a lecturer in the School of Art in the Sculpture Program at Edinburgh College of Art.
0: He's also an artist with a number of public works around the UK.
2: Well, I've done quite a bit in Scotland. I've got In Glasgow, I've got quite a few pieces. Things in London, I've got pieces in Leicester Square, Liverpool Street Station. Bishop Square and currently my current project is in London as well and that's in a place called and Castle.
0: I asked him about this issue about us bringing 19th century work into the 21st about the statue of William Playfair standing outside the National Museum because while it seems to mirror the 19th century work opposite it Patina and all Playfair only came up in 2016.
2: You could be forgiven for maybe one historical belch But this is a problem with Edinburgh. Not only is there Playfair, there's Adam Smith in the Royal Mile, there's David Hume in the Royal Mile, there's another guy down in George, uh, Maxwell, the scientist down on George Street, Green Street, all done by the same artist, all looking like a 19th century monument. So that's effectively like rebuilding Edinburgh's past. And the irony of it all is that you know, p- people like David Hume and Adam Smith were difficult, challenging thinkers who presented ideas that were un- uh, controversial and troubling to the po- to the people of that time. So we shouldn't should be afraid of remembering that when we th- go about commissioning artists. And, and also, to add, in sort of the injury, we're living in a kind of Golden age, if you like, if that's too not too romantic a term of uh, of Scottish art or Scottish contemporary art, is is. Being recognised the world over as as punching above its weight and numerous uh, international profiles and what you know, people and being collected and given museum shows, you know, you, we've never had a better time. I, I, I could you could quite arguably prove that on a home computer. Never mind, this is not a matter of opinion. You could definitely say Scotland has is the thing, currently living through uh, a golden age of our visual art and our capital cities. New are not picking up on it, right. you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Edinburgh has got a lot of going for it scientifically and literature wise, and you know is still yeah. making moves, but in terms of the built environment, I think the World Heritage status around Edinburgh is like a, a bejewelled noose, that on the one way it's, it's a cash cow, as everybody knows, it brings in masses of tourism, and it, it has seems to have created a fear of the of the modern in case they somehow curse this uh, ability to, to bring in a tourist dollar. Instead of saying, "Well, here's an opportunity for us to add to Edinburgh's offer, or something contemporary," but yeah, I think as a field, generally, the field of public art globally is really exciting. It's never been at a better time, actually. I don't think. I think it's there was a time when you had contemporary art and you had public art, and while they're still kind of separate, there's an overlap happening now, which wasn't there before. So. You get artists who are uh, you know operating at a very high level who happily take on public commissions but where you could see that probably didn't happen as much before and you can maybe credit that slightly to maybe things like the fourth plinth, Um but I think generally that's that's a kind of well, maybe that's too obvious a thing to say there's just been a lot more enlightened um, commissioning.
0: Getting back to the University of Edinburgh, I know this took a broad turn. This is why the public art collection here is really important, or at least interesting, for the city as a whole and the university's place within it. We are in a golden age of art here, and the university is providing more opportunity for this contemporary, creative, challenging artwork to be seen and supported in a city where we tend to have more zombie sculptures, as Hunter might call them. We have works that create space rather than just exist in one. There's Things by Jack McCallum, part of his 2016 degree show. It's made up of 31 subtle alterations to the city environment, and it's out by Lorist and placed by the College of Our Campus. And if I'm being honest, I haven't found any of them yet, so let me know if you do. So, you know, it's very easily overlooked, and it's really directly affecting a whole public space, transforming and creating it. We also have The Next Big Thing is a Series of Little Things, another recent project installed in 2017 by artist Susan Collis. And it's, frankly, a bunch of little things that make up a big thing. It's a line of brass rivets running through Bristow Square like paint drops from a leaky bucket carried across from the historic McEwen Hall front doors. They're really subtle and really affect the experience of that public space. I know I can't walk through it without trying to purposely step on a little rivet. It almost completes my walk. We also have very abstract work. If you're familiar with the University of Edinburgh campus, you may know Pollock Halls of Residence. Outside one of those dorms are three of what look like just boulders, or rather untreated sandstone rocks. That's actually a 1998 work called Protégé by artist Chris Hall. The two main rocks represent the university and its secure environment, while the third rock nearby is the cutting edge of the real world. It sits in a pebbled garden nestled in the U-shaped Holland House residence, and I point out protégé because I didn't even realize those rocks could be public art until this year. The several campuses that make up the University of Edinburgh all house really interesting, unique public artworks, and of course some patina 19th century men from the actual 19th century. And so many of them are outside, pretty easily and clearly publicly accessible. So how does Coley fit in? Let's allow a public library to be a public space. Coley's work, The Great, Bright, The Basic Material is Not the Word but the Letter, is this new site-specific work. The phrase is actually pulled from writing by Scottish poet, writer, artist, and gardener, Ian Hamilton Finley. Coley found his inspiration in the library archives just a few floors up from where his work is currently installed, So his work has these new components we expect from our public art. It wasn't made to be placed just anywhere. It was made with that library in mind and inspires creative use of the resources available there. It satisfies our new understanding and our new criteria of public art, but maybe not the old one? See, I wasn't content just yet either. So, I mean, as I mentioned, this is just an introduction episode, and I interviewed teaching fellow Harry Weeks for a future topic, so you'll be formally introduced later. Still I couldn't help but ask him about Coley being public art. Would you count? And this is again, this is like a personal struggle that I've been having. Would you count the Nathan Coley piece as public art despite the need to be a member of the university in order to see it?
3: Well you can you can peer through the window or <laughs> you can go into that kind of the bit before you scan your card and see it. And you just peek. <laughs> um I guess it's a curious one as well, because technically you could i presume there's a mechanism by which you can you can ask to enter the building to see the art to mm-hmm. see the work
0: I mean because there's also the gallery there which seems like
3: but the gallery is before you have to go through right, the, right. the card point yeah I don't know it's a curious one i I don't know if I would count it as public art, but then i'm also I'm also wary of sort of trying to kind of police the police the boundaries of what public art is because yeah, <laughs> yeah, how, who, yeah, who am I to say what is and isn't I don't I don't I don't necessarily see it as functioning in the same way that as I think may, maybe what it is and I hadn't even thought this through myself is that I think when I, what I consider to be public art versus not necessarily to be public art is not necessarily about where it is mm-hmm. because it might be on private land Um but it 's about how people engage with it or how people relate to it,
0: which is a relatively new point of public art is that it has to have this engagement with the people around it with the audience
3: yeah, yeah, so yeah i mean you, know, you can't really yeah you can 't really compare it with like an equestrian statue sort of like you know nineteenth century equestrian statue um, it, it works kind of differently, but in terms of modern and contemporary art, you know. Public art is something that people kind of almost bustle around and don't necessarily notice. Actually, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about now. (laughs) I thought I had an idea of, of, of why Nathan Coley's thing isn't public art. I think it is and it isn't. I don't know.
0: Well, as I think I warned you, this wasn't going to end up with a clear, definitive answer. Hopefully, the whole of how we got here and why it is tough makes a little bit more sense It's a long history and a very young discussion, and there's new expectations distinguishing art in public places and public art. In the next episode, we'll talk even more about how location matters and if we really need context and meaning to appreciate a work of public art. Oh, and by the way, I did talk to Nathan Coley about his work and his thoughts on the library setting, and if you ask him, he'll say it's just public enough. The Collection Public Art Podcast is a production of the University of Edinburgh and the Center for Research Collections. It is written and produced by me, Roxandra Bajak, executive producer, University of Edinburgh Art Collection. Music by local composer Joseph Stevenson. If you'd like to know more about these items and other items in the collection, please visit the university's collection website at collections.ed.ac.uk. Better yet, you can see these items online at images.is.ed.ac.uk, or of course out and around the university. My name is Roxandra, and as always, thank you for stopping by The Collection. This podcast is supported by the University of Edinburgh's main library, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, where connections come alive. Share your favorite memories through text, photos, and or video of your time at the library by tagging at eduni libraries using the hashtag uoelib50 on Facebook and Instagram.